0: Good morning everyone and welcome to a special edition of a Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June thirtieth, twenty nineteen. The share ID numbers for Friday, June twenty-eighth are the following. For the seven AM Eastern Big Book Study, thirteen thousand and ninety-one. That's one three zero nine one. For the ten AM Eastern Big Book Study, thirteen thousand and ninety-three. That's one three zero nine three. This morning a vision for you presents. The Ten Blockages to Serenity. The goal, aim, and objective of the program of recovery is a spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening can be thought of as a new state of consciousness and being, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from compulsive overeating, and as an awareness of a power greater than ourselves. The big book speaks of a transformation stemming from access to a source of strength, a power which before we had denied ourselves. The results of a spiritual awakening are dramatic, although they may take place over a long period of time. They include changed perceptions, attitudes, and behavior. The program of recovery, the 12 steps, not only help to stop our compulsive overeating, but help in living better lives. We become aware of our defects of character, our shortcomings, which block our access to God, hence blocking the way to serenity and peace of mind. These undesirable parts of ourselves must be removed and replaced with godly character. These changes and rearrangements that take place in our lives require a cooperative effort. Sometimes we fear that without them we won't be able to cope with life, succeed at work, manage our relationships, We cling to these shortcomings and defects, believing they're necessary for our survival. These changes and rearrangements that take place in our lives through the spiritual work require a cooperative effort. God provides direction, we contribute the willingness to take the actions required. We give complete license to that loving power to work in our lives, believing God's wisdom and direction far exceeds our own. Joining us today to expound on this very topic and speak about these blockages to serenity is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. John is a loyal member of Overeaters Anonymous, a loyal servant devoted to our way of life and to carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great delight and appreciation I welcome John Kay to the line.
1: Good morning, Leah. My name is John and I'm a recovered convulsive overeater in Los Angeles.
0: Um, yeah, so I found myself thinking
1: one day about the 12-step programs, and, and it also in particular, and, and I got thinking, you know, what, what's the goal of all this? You know, is, is it losing weight, getting a healthy body weight? Well, no, because weight's just a symptom of the disease I need to treat on a daily basis, and as I kept scraping away at those layers to figure out the goal, uh, you know, I, I consider things. Is it a conscious contact with a higher power? Well, you know, that's important and one of the goals, uh, as is being of service, being in a position of neutrality with food. But the ultimate gift program gives me in terms of my day-to-day life, if I think about it, what's the goal? What's, what is it? To me, it's serenity. And by serenity, you know, I don't mean walking around like a monk and divorcing myself from worldly things, you know. It, it, more, it's in serenity amidst worldly things, you know, amidst worldly clamor and upsetting situations and dealing with difficult people. And, you know, all of those many stressors that living in a modern world throws at you. You know, for many years, even though I had put the food down and my other substances down, there was only partial serenity in my life. You know, to me, the real peace and relief comes from being relieved of, of my shortcomings. You know, for most of us, this, this is a lifelong occupation. I mean, you know, of course the seventh step says only God will remove them. And while I think this is true, I also think it's my job to meet my higher power at least halfway. You know, I have to do my part in recognizing my aberrant thinking and, and, and actions and try, you know, to the best of my abilities, to change them. You know, instead of thinking of the seventh step as God just plucking away my shortcomings without any effort on my part, I like to think of it as a partnership between myself and my higher power to help me diminish these shortcomings little by little until God decides to completely remove them from my life. You know, in the steps we hear two different phrases mentioned, character defects and shortcomings, and you know, there's two schools of thought on why these seemingly interchangeable words are there side by side. The one school of thought, and, and the predominant one, is that Bill was simply trying to mix up the language, as any good writer would. You know, as a writer myself, I can tell you, using synonyms, you know, keeps my writing from becoming repetitive. There is, however, another s- school of thought on this. There are people within the 12-step community who think the phrase character defects is about the underlying defective thinking and motivation that destri- drives our distorted behavior, while shortcoming concerns itself, shortcomings just, you know, they concern with the, the actions and behaviors themselves. And I like the concept of splitting those into two parts a little, and for the sake of this talk, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do just that. Now, I came from a dysfunctional family, and, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's a common trait, especially in OA, you know, and, and maybe it wasn't a family of addiction, But for most of us, it was a family of some kind of dysfunction, you know? And as a result, I learned bad ways of looking at life and dealing with life. You know, I was taught distorted ways of thinking about other people and their intentions, bad ways of coping with life's problems and frustrations and handling tough times. Now, the thing I realize now is that this bundle of bad behaviors and attitudes were not a result of insane thinking, but rather. They were sane reactions to an insane environment in which I was raised. You know, program taught me that while this mindset did protect me at one point in my life, it went from being a friend to an enemy. And psychologists will tell you, though, that the things that you learn earliest in life are the hardest to turn around. You know, and, and it's going to take time, but in the end, it's worth it if, you, if you're working on this. You know, for today, I have to be willing to accept, as it says in the AA 12 and 12 and the 6th step, I have to accept patient improvement. You know, the laboratory for my earliest behaviors and faulty thinking was that family dis, uh, dysfunctional family environment. And, and thus, I have to find a way to change those lifelong thoughts that were not only not helping me in life, but these were actively harming me. You know, one of the reasons it's difficult for people once they leave early adulthood to change is that the actions that we take on a day-to-day basis are reinforced on a day-to-day basis. Well, who's doing this reinforcing of this faulty thinking? Well, we are. You know, one of the reasons people have trouble changing their beliefs in anything is something called confirmation bias. And this quirk of mind plays a big part in a lot of the behaviors I'm going to be talking about today. At the core of this dysfunctional upbringing that I had was no belief in a personal higher power. You know, no belief that there was a force of good in my life, and a force that had my back. And without any of those tools that I was then later given in life through the 12 steps, I mean I went through life as a scared little kid inside, it alone in this scary world with nothing but my wits and faulty coping mechanisms to help guide me through life. I mean I was a scared little kid well into adulthood. And as a result of this crazy upbringing and thinking, I ended up with what I heard called in my other program, a quote, alcoholic personality. Now, in reality, I think when I look at it, it's considered mostly it's an immature personality, but it's also comprised of some skewed thinking about other people and about life. If I want to be rid of that alcoholic personality, I need to look at the various components, the negative components that made up my distorted thinking. I felt if I could put these components down on paper, even turning them into a list that I could refer to from time to time, I could work toward altering those behaviors. Now, this change, of course, is a lifelong process, and I need to remember I have to be patient with myself because, again, turning around a lifetime list, a history of doing it the wrong way, it's just not going to turn on a dime. So I started thinking back on my life, and, and like it says in the promises, you know, we shall not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. And then later it mentions, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. You know, some of that retrospection, if it's not done in a maudlin way, can also benefit ourselves as long as we can look back and learn about ourselves through self-awareness. And in how it works, there is an important paragraph that drills down, down exactly on some of the things I'm going to talk about here today. And that paragraph says, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self delusion self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but invariably we find that sometime in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. Well, in looking back at my life before recovery and quite a while into recovery, I saw a number of specific ways where my distorted thinking caused me to do just what was said. I often stepped on the toes of my fellows. But I also quite often, through my own distorted perceptions, stepped on my own toes. (laughs) You know, there were many times in life where I was my own worst enemy. You know, in the family afterward, it says, we alcoholics are sensitive people. Some of us take a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. Well, I'm not sure I agree 100% that being a sensitive person is a handicap in and of itself. However, it can be a handicap if it's accompanied by some of my seriously misguided thoughts. You know, a while back, I saw a list of behaviors that were called cognitive distortions. And this list detailed many of my personality problems that, that describe my old alcoholic personality to a T. And it was made up of a number of items, many of which comprised my own worst shortcomings. The other thing I saw in myself is that these behaviors always skewed toward the negative side of things. You know, And again, I, I, if my behavior skewed toward the positive side, I probably wouldn't have needed the program or the steps or anything. Now, I'm going to go over this list one by one. If you're interested later, I'll I'll explain. I can give you a a short copy of this list. Uh, I'd also like to mention that on this list of 10 things, uh, a lot of them sort of overlap a little So let's dig into the list. The first of these misguided thinking patterns is something called filtering. You know, and this is the kind of thinking that takes negative details of the situation and magnifies those details while filtering out any of the positive aspects of the situation. You know, and for some that can be called just good old negative thinking, you know, but there's more to it than that. You know, before program, I would sometimes pick out a single unpleasant detail and dwell on it exclusively so that my vision became darkened and distorted. More importantly, this was put in my head at a very early age because I came from that family that went through life expecting the worst and and living life in a defensive crouch. That's the way I could describe it. Moreover, this treatment, was constantly reinforced in me by me, okay? This involved that confirmation bias I spoke about earlier. You know, that means that once you believe in something, you tend to go also over things that don't reinforce that belief while focusing on the things that you do. Now, I'm going to give you a perfect example of that. Years ago, I was visiting my mother who lived in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. she lived right off of this busy road called A1A, okay? It's the kind of busy road with strip malls and franchise restaurants on every block. And what was also on every block, at every intersection, was a traffic light. And we used to joke that the lights there were reverse synchronized, meaning that as soon as the light went green for you, (laughs) the next light up ahead would be going red. As a result, sometimes it would take like 15 minutes to go like a mile or two down the road. Well... One day, we're driving to lunch on that road, and my mother's driving and rattling on about something, and, and after a, just a little while, it dawned on me, geez, we've driven through about 10 green lights in a row, you know, and this is definitely not the norm, and as she was driving, I noticed we went through another green light and another green light and another green light, and then finally up ahead, a traffic light went yellow and went red, and my mother saw that, and she turned to me and said, see? I always hit all the red lights, and suddenly I saw this in perfect focus. This is where I got this negative skew of life, and it helped reinforce it. I helped reinforce it through this confirmation bias. I always saw the red lights in life and ignored the green lights. And in terms of filtering, what would happen, I wondered, if instead of paying attention to the negative things. I paid attention to positive things and tried to gloss over the negative things. I started doing that. While not done perfectly, I started to see the truth. I hit about as many red lights and I drive through about as many green lights as anyone else. But, you know, the traffic light's a metaphor for so many other things in life. You know, when I'm willing to look objectively rather than go into poor me mode when something bad happens to me, I can realize whatever happened to me is just part of life. You know, this kind of repatterning took time, of course, and I can still occasionally slip back into that old behavior. But I find that the longer I do a new behavior, the closer it gets to becoming the dominant behavior. So so the second of these thinking distortions is black and white thinking. You know, I love black and white thinking because it simplified everything into a binary decision or assessment for me. You know, and again, this was this outcropping of my character defect of immaturity. I wanted and expected everything in life to be black and white, either or, but that's unrealistic. There's hardly any example of this in the real world. And when I did that, all I did was frustrate myself or misjudge others. You know, if somebody did something I thought was wrong, or I felt it wronged me, or was someone I cared about, that was it. They were, you know, henceforth, consigned to my bad list of people and marooned on jerk island forever, you know. Well, you know, if you read in the big book, one of my favorite lines in big books uh, from Dr. Paul in Acceptance is the Answer, and he says, A.A. and Acceptance has taught me there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we're all children of God and we all have a right to be here. You know, you know, so somebody said something a little screwy on one particular day. All of a sudden, I'm consigning them to the trash heap of my broken relationships. I mean, think about it. What about me? Do I ever say anything screwy? I mean, sure, lots of times, you know. And hopefully, those around me are able to have the thought that, hey, maybe he's just having a bad day. You know, in my area uh, of the country, uh, at OA meetings, they sort of bristle at reading the Lord's Prayer, and I don't have an opinion on that from a political standpoint, except to say that as a result, people don't hear one of the most important thoughts I learned in program when it was spoken more. And that is this one phrase that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. In other words, if I want to be forgiven for that occasional nutty remark or action that I do, I have to be able to be willing to forgive, you know, people who do the same. And this especially helps me to remember this when I'm assessing my own actions. You know, in my past, I was either perfect or was garbage. And no, oh, I'm the child of God. I have a right to be here. You know, the underlying thinking process about black and white thinking is that it's based on immaturity. It's fine to have black and white thinking when you're a kid, but as an adult, I mean, I have a lifetime of proof that life is not black and white. It's not even shades of gray. It's made up of a million colors, metaphorically. And to deal with life as a recovered person you require sane thinking, and sane thinking is based on your behavior. And you can't make good life decisions if they're based on flawed, black-and-white perception. The third distortion is overgeneralization. And in this example of this self-defeating behavior, I tended to come to a general conclusion about something or person based only on single action or two. You no, know, If something bad happens just once, I would expect it to happen over and over again. You know and now this topic overlaps a bit with what I said earlier about my interactions with people. I would take your actions at this moment as an indication of how you will be in every future moment, in every future situation. And as a result, I would mentally evict those people from my world because of some small thing. You know, now, I didn't actually evict them, but from that point on, I would judge them on a much harsher scale, expecting the worst from them and seeing everything in a negative way from, uh, that they did. On the flip side, if I met someone and they did something on the positive side of the ledger early on, I would often see them as better or nicer or more confident than they actually were for far longer than my observation should indicate I should, you yeah? Well, this distorted thinking, when it came to various efforts and endeavors, caused me quite often to quit on projects that took extended effort. I mean, as soon as it got tough or I suffered a setback, I was done. I mean, since it was hard now, it was going to be hard forever. <laughs> well, after all, this single show, the setback that I had in something showed me that I obviously wasn't competent enough to overcome this setback. Well, you know, nobody starts out on anything new as an expert. Most things require a learning curve. Well, I couldn't accept the concept of a learning curve and that things would be easier. To me, that thinking said, I I knew it wouldn't be easier because what was happening now was going to happen this way forever. You know, I once heard a, 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 a great line. That said, somebody said, in the history of everything that has worked, there was a previous time when it didn't work. You know, Edison, Edison struggled on perfecting a light bulb for a full year before getting the first one to work. But again, my ego would think that I'm special, and that would kick in the expectations machine. And when that expectation of instant mastery hits some small setback, well, this was going to be a never-ending series of setbacks, so why bother? And an important aspect of conquering this behavior was was stopping to consider the real-world life data that was available. Was it true that whatever I was dealing with always happened? I mean, in some cases, this was the first time I did the behavior. How could I possibly get a real vision of a future situation based on one experience? I mean, I don't do this with other areas of my life. You know, I'm a computer programmer, and I never expect a program to work perfectly on the first pass. So why should I not think that way in other areas of my life? But when I drill down on it some more, I unearthed another one of my main character defects, which is fear. Fear of not being enough fear of rejection, fear of not being perfect. And as a result, if I could convince myself that this initial failure was going to continue, I could cut and run, thus avoiding any more bad feelings, especially if I thought they were going to end in failure. Well, you know, the only way to avoid bad feelings is to never venture out of my comfort zone and try something new. In my twisted thinking, it was better to quit than to fail. You know, the thing that I didn't realize is, you know, that I was doing this, over time, It didn't it until, until way later into recovery that I realized this was part of my modus operandi, and, and it's not the way to live. I mean, as, as Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And another aspect of this thinking concerned how I dealt with life when I found myself in the middle of bad or difficult times. You know, if things were bad right at this moment, I mean, a black gloom would descend over me in my life. An old sponsor once said to me, John, when when things aren't going well for you, you amplify them with the thought that it's going to be this way forever. You know, the reality is that program taught me one great phrase, this too will pass, which helps me attenuate my moods now. You know, bad times pass, and then there are good times. You know, and then those pass, and things are normal for a while, and then bad again, and then good again. Guess what? That's called life. You know, in an effort to try to lose this self-defeating behavior of overgeneralization, I try to remind myself how I feel about people who have prejudice of any kind. I have no trouble with the f- understanding the flaw in their thinking about prejudice. You know Obviously, you can't judge any large group based on the actions of a few. Well, since I can understand why that is illogical, I have to admit that overgeneralization is based on that same flawed logic. The next distortion of thinking is jumping to conclusions. Now, the concept of jumping to conclusions has two parts. The important thing I recognized about coming from my negative family of origin is that I was taught to assume negative intent from people unless proven otherwise. Also, expect the worst outcome in any situation unless proven otherwise. The trouble with this type of thinking is that in both cases it often leads to some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Now let's look at these two examples of the subparts of jumping to conclusions. The first is mind reading. You know, to jump to conclusions, especially erroneous conclusions with other people, involves the mistaken belief I could read their minds. You know, when I jump to conclusion concerning a personal interaction, I believed I knew what the other person was feeling and thinking and exactly why they were acting the way they did. And as I mentioned, since I was raised with this negative, defensive posture toward the world, I could never ascribe other people's intentions as being anything other than in the most negative of terms. Now, the fact was, most of the time, there was no underlying intent of any kind. Sometimes I would actually construe something meant to be helpful or kind as just the opposite. It was no wonder. I could sometimes be my own worst enemy. I mean, sometimes I'd build whole scenarios and backstories about how someone felt about me based on some trivial incident that I had, of course, misinterpreted. Now, with this kind of thinking, I swear I could have written a book called How to Not Make Friends and Drive Away People. So the second part of jumping into conclusions is fortune telling. You know, when jumping to conclusions that didn't include other people, but in concerned anticipated situations, I turned from a mind reader into a fortune teller. In this case, I would make conclusions and predictions for the future based on little or no evidence. And then I would hold them as gospel truth. You know, sometimes this would lead me to anticipate that things would turn out badly in whatever expected interaction, so why bother? Some like I mentioned before... underneath this thinking was some kind of subconscious attempt to guard myself against hurt and disappointment. You know, I I, I joked once, I said, I wonder how many women in my youth that I was attracted to, but never bothered to walk up to and introduce myself, knew that the two of us had had an entire interaction in my head that ended with them rejecting me before I even said hello. And since they were going to reject me anyway, well, why bother going up and talking to them? Uh... Other times, I anticipated a contentious interchange with somebody that I thought was going to disagree with me about something. So I would work out this intricate argument between myself and that person, and during that argument, which, by the way, was all in my head, uh, I played out both sides of this debate with my parrying the other person's arguments and points with my own superior logic. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times when that interchange finally took place, the person would not would end up not responding. I thought one would like agree with me right away. I mean, my God, how dare they sabotage that perfectly laid out argument I had planned by agreeing with me. (laughs) I mean, I once heard someone say that their sponsor told them that they are not allowed to have arguments with people that are not currently in the room. (laughs) I mean, I, I agree with that. And at the end of the day, getting freedom from misbehavior, it's in the big book. It's practically on every page that reminds me I am not God. And as such, I can neither predict the future nor read minds. I mean, if I could, I'd be rich, but I ain't. Okay. (laughs) So the next block to serenity is catastrophizing. Now, there's two kinds of catastrophizing that undermine my life early on. The first involved catastrophizing with a healthy dose of that aforementioned fortune telling. You know, things were always going to go badly, so I better plan for whatever disaster was about to strike. I mean, this was a huge waste of my psychic energy. I mean, when I thought that there might be possibly be a problem on the horizon, I couldn't just wait to see if it would happen. I had to plan for that possible eventuality. But I couldn't just plan for something to go slightly wrong. I had to expect and try to plan and ruminate over the worst possible outcome. Somehow in my adult brain, planning for the worst possible outcome would somehow give me an edge by my having anticipated it. Now, of course, Nothing I ever planned for ever happened, or it wouldn't happen to the catastrophic extent I projected. All I really ever did was traumatize myself unnecessarily. The second kind of catastrophizing was to magnify a small setback into a huge blow. Now, what was that about? Simple. Ego. I exaggerated how bad things were because I don't just have bad things happen to me. I have the worst things happen to me. Uh, You know, I work for myself, and I have for many years, and any of you out there who have been in this situation know there can be times when there's a lot of business and times when there's not. And when I went through a downturn, even a temporary one, in my head, I was going to be living in a a box under a highway bridge or begging for money at the end of the off ramp. I mean, it didn't matter that I had seen this downturn many times. This time, it was going to be permanent. Well, the solution for changing this kind of thinking is to stay in the present, having the faith that everything is happening as it should in the world. It's my job to accept it and have faith that there's a purpose behind it all, and the world and the events are not against me. It also helps to realize I've been given this erroneous message that nothing bad was ever supposed to happen to me. And again, that was attached to my ego, which always made me special. The truth is that bad things happen to everyone, and God didn't exempt me from that. You know, it's not a matter of punishment, but life, you know, continually putting learning opportunities in front of me. And so now, when that catastrophizing voice chirps up, I can just say, well, thanks for sharing, (laughs) and stay in the real world. The sixth example of, of flawed thinking is called personalization. You know, I came into the program with those negative views and a big ego and, of course, assumed that everything that happened was somehow tied to me personally. You know, the person who just cut me off on the highway did it to personally tick me off. <laughs> no. He's probably on the phone or texting or other some other, you know, thoughtless thing. I just happen to be the latest victim of that thoughtlessness. You know, I heard somebody once say, never attribute to malevolence what could be more appropriately attributed to cluelessness. In other words, it ain't about you, John. You know, and the roots of this behavior, again, it ties back to my ego. The thing about paranoia is it devol- it requires a really overdeveloped ego. You know, my ego said that every action a person did was deliberately thought out and directed toward me. Well, you know, there's another great... Th- why and I heard once, that I think it's apropos to this, the person said, the thing that would bother me most about what most people think about me is just how little they actually thought about me.
2: <laughs> you know, and the other
1: end of this personalization was my believing that many things that happened did so because of something I did or did not do. I mean, if somebody tripped on a fold on the rug on the floor, and I had seen that fold previously, it was my fault for not having fixed that fold when I saw it. Again, a matter of ego. Somehow I perceived myself as to have so much more control over people in their lives than I actually did. You know, in a way I was playing God, but not in a good way. I was beating myself up for not being God and not being omniscient about everything and trying to protect everyone. Another offshoot of personalization was that I was always comparing myself to others, always trying to determine who was smarter, better looking, thinner. It wasn't good enough to just be me. I had to assess my worthiness based on my comparison to others. And since I had a lousy self-image, I always found a way to compare myself to people only where I would come up lacking. Well, Why? Well, because it fulfilled that predetermined script that I wasn't as good as you. Another example of that confirmation bias, a lifetime of negative self-talk. You know, as an old-timer out here in California says, the shortest distance to insanity is through comparison. And it wouldn't be any better if I changed my actions to comparing myself to others when I compared better to them. That would just be my low self-esteem needing to find assurance that I'm okay by being better than someone else. I needed to really begin to believe that I'm okay just the way I am. How I compare to others has absolutely nothing to do with how I actually am, what my worth as a person is. And if I can do this, I mean, really internalize it. I don't need to look to compare myself to others. I'm right where God wants me, better than some people in some things and worse than others. Another example of my warped thinking was a desire for control. You know, a better description uh, of this past behavior was a need to control. Based on the chaotic environment of my youth, control at that time was very important. I wasn't a child anymore, though. I wasn't in that chaotic house. This is another one of those outdated views of life that caused me immense trouble. It caused me to step on the toes of people a lot. You know, I would have to have my say in everything. I would have to work forcefully to get my way. And this alienated people. and made me not a lot of fun to be around and to work with. And again, this behavior was based partly on my ego. I felt I knew better than than everyone about what was the correct way to do things, so why weren't they listening to my superior intelligence? (laughs) Look, here's the thing. I am smart, but guess what? I am not the only smart person in the room at any given time. And as as I said in a previous special edition, the first three steps for me, this far into recovery, by the way, I didn't qualify, but I've been in for program for 37 years, been absent 24. Um, this forward to recovery, the first step says I'm powerless over people, places, and things, and I need to remember that on a daily basis. I need to remember that just because people do things differently than I do doesn't mean they're doing them wrong, just differently. As I heard someone tell their sponsee sponsor once, other people are not imperfect versions of you. You know, the other part of working to smash uh, my ego and find humility is to realize that in any situation, I might not be right. I make my share of mistakes in all these conclusions. Why should I be foisting my possibly incorrect idea on others, especially if they didn't ask me for that opinion or help? But again, this desire for control comes from a thread through time back to my childhood and an unsafe environment. As a kid, the only way I could get things to be safe was to be on top of everything and ready to control things. Well, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm an adult. I have a skill sets that have helped me handle any situation life has had to throw at me. But most importantly, I have a higher power today. And that higher power has my back. Another bar to serenity was having faulty expectations. You know, expectations, as I was taught in these rooms, are just premeditated resentments. And as you probably noticed, expectations have played a large part in most of these distorted behaviors I've already talked about. You know, sometime in the past, I developed this internal rule book that I expected everyone to follow. Otherwise, things weren't fair, you know. And it really didn't matter if some of these things in this rule book were totally delusional. These were things that ruled my life. Well, you know, in the story on acceptance in the big book, Dr. Paul says, my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations. You know, an old sponsor once said to me, John, you know, you amplify everything bad that happens to you by having the thought, and it shouldn't be that way. You know, he was right. I somehow thought that life was supposed to be nothing but a series of positive events where nothing bad ever happened to me, and I never suffered any pain or setback. You know, going back to that traffic light metaphor it was the expectation that I should never hit any red lights. I mean, that was my ego talking. After all, I'm special. Nothing's ever supposed to go wrong for me. Well, you know what? That's not life. That's fantasy. I remember hearing an old joke where somebody was bemoaning something bad that had happened to them and was looking at the sky and wailing, why me, God? And a moment later, a voice from the clouds says, "Eh, why not you? (laughs) You know, exactly. Now, the reality is that we all have expectations about things and people in our daily lives. And my job as a recovered person is to separate the normal, legitimate expectations from the faulty, often ego-driven expectations. No, today when I'm getting upset about something in my life, I try to do a quick spot check to see if I can find the problem. Often, the upset is due to faulty expectations, usually in other people. They're not sticking to my script. I had an old girlfriend who used to say to me in a kidding way, John, the trouble is they didn't get your rule book. (laughs) Another example of this distorted thinking is emotional reasoning. Now, the concept of emotional reasoning can be summed up by this statement. I feel that way, therefore it must be true. Well, you know, emotions are extremely strong in human beings, and they can override our our rational thoughts and reasoning. You know, sometimes this distorted thinking meant that my emotions took over my thinking entirely, blotting out all rationality and logic. And when I dealt with emotional reasoning, I assumed my unhealthy emotions reflected the way things really were. I, again, if I feel it, this must be true. But you guys in program taught me, no, feelings are not facts. What I can see now is I was a sick puppy with a lot of old baggage, a lot of self-defeating scripts I needed to fulfill. My iner- inerring, uh, unerring ability to, to use confirmation bias to help convince myself via my emotions that all these bad things I thought about myself were not just feelings, but actual facts. You know, not true. The number one way I work on putting this behavior to bed involved one important word, pause, breathe, stop, look around, slow down. An emotional, cranked-up person is very often not a rational person. I mean... If only, if only they had written something about this in the big book. Oh, wait, they did. <laughs> On page 86, it says, As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves, We are not running the show. Humbly <laughs> saying to ourselves, Each day, thy will be done. You know, whenever I act, reacted through emotion, the reaction was always, almost always not a good one. I mean, I might have even had an appropriate reaction, but I would react with a thousand times more intensity than was needed, and often that extra intensity canceled out people's ability to hear what I was saying or to take me seriously. You know, it took me years in life to realize that if I want to communicate with people, they have to be able to hear me. And if my actions are causing people a shutdown in their ability to hear me, then I'm not communicating. I'm just venting. And the final self-defeating behavior and block to serenity is judgmentalism. You know, in the house I grew up in, if something went wrong, someone was to blame. Now, for reasons that still baffle me, before anything could be done about whatever had gone wrong, blame had to be assigned, and the receiver of the blame had to be shunned or chastised in some way. And as a result, this caused two major faults to arise in me. The first was rationalization and justification. No matter what the degree of culpability I had in something bad, I needed to do all kinds of intellectual gymnastics to explain why the offensive thing I did was actually your fault. (laughs) You know, in my favorite big book story, which is Freedom from Bondage, the author Wynne L. has a wonderful line. She says, Rationalization is giving a socially acceptable reason for socially unacceptable behavior, and socially unacceptable behavior is a form of insanity. You know, coming to program and finding that tenth step was just such a wonderful relief. I could just own my part, truly say "I'm sorry," and move on. But you know, the most destructive offshoot of growing up with this blame game was judgmentalism meaning I was so super critical, everything and everybody, but the reality is that I was most critical, hypercritical, actually, with regards to myself. You know, these unrelenting high standards that could never be met, if you drilled down, down on them, were actually due to my low self-esteem. Because I never thought that I was as good as you or anyone else. The only way I could assure myself that I was good was to be perfect. And, of course, nobody's perfect. And as a result, I always fell short of my my goals and aspirations, which then, of course, fed into my low self-esteem even more. I then took that judgmental nature and turned it outwards. I would hold everyone to the same impossible standard, and they, too, would fall short. You know, sometimes I would find someone who met my standards, but then at some point they would fall short, and then I saw the same judgmental eye. Now, what this really came down to was that I couldn't see the humanness in others, especially myself. You know, nobody does everything right all the time. That's the nature of the human condition. But I couldn't understand that. So when I fell short, I was either a screw-up or I was just a bad person. You know, to quote my buddy Harlan, no matter how much I try, I don't rise above the level of human being. And on any given day, (coughs) I'm going to fall flat on my face in some aspect of my life. Now, one of my favorite paragraphs in the big book is on page 417. And it's not the famous acceptance paragraph, but rather the one right after it. And then Dr. Paul says, when I criticize me or you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. And the important word there that I missed for many years in that sentence was me. When I criticize me or you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. In other words, even though I'm flawed and I want to do better, I'm right where God wants me today. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe because I'm supposed to learn some lessons about these stumble. Maybe to come to accept my humanness and therefore accept the humanness of others. One of the greatest thoughts <clears throat> that can pop in my head at times when things are bad or when I get frustrated or when things don't go my way is this. What am I supposed to be learning from this? Not woe is me, not why me, God, not why don't they understand my way is better. Again, the most important word, in my opinion, in the 12 steps is the word only in the 11th step. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. In other words, I don't run the show. I like to think I do, but I don't. And if I get totally honest about it, the amount of control I have over anything in the world is pitifully small. So why not just smile, buckle up, and go along for the ride instead of trying to steer all the time? Well, you know, these blockages to serenity, these 10 I've highlighted are just a few of my chart toppers. I could talk about many others, and there may be some serenity blocking behaviors you may have that I don't, but chances are more likely that I just either didn't think of them when I was working on this or didn't have time to go into more. You know, working on these distortions of perceptions, again, it's a lifetime job, walking with one step forward, two steps back. But the answers are there for us in the big book and in the steps. And in terms of a higher power, as I've often said, I love the 12-step version of a higher power because it's a grounded-out, real-world higher power. And that means that the program teaches me the concept of God, myself, and another human being, which I think is the key to recovery. Sometimes my higher power delegates the job of helping me to others, most often others in program. And connecting with others you trust and being honest about your thoughts and feelings is a huge part of this recovery process. Another crucial part of the recovery process is to be the kind of person who genuinely, genuinely wants feedback, even if it might not be what they want to hear. I need to touch base with my fellow program people to decide whether my perception of things comes from sober or covered John or whether crazy John has just showed up on an out. The other great thing about using other people you trust as a sounding board is you don't sit alone with your thoughts because that often leads to spinning out and usually not in a good way. And finally, when all else fails, I try to remember one of the key words I learned in program: gratitude. And this doesn't mean having a Pollyanna way of, about things and trying to gloss over when things that have happened might be upsetting me and blocking my serenity. Instead, it means taking a moment to do a quick gratitude list because it helps put things in perspective. You know, if you're like me, if you can sit, sit, sit still for a moment and consider your life as it compares to the vast majority of the population of the world, you cannot help but be grateful. Almost all the things I am grateful for were things that were given to me without any effort on my part. Things that were given to me that many other people in the world don't have. If you spend a few minutes in doing a gratitude inventory, you'll almost always find yourself moving back to serenity, no matter what's going on in your life. Almost all of us have to admit that no matter what our problems are, they're first world problems. Finally, when I came into the program, I was told, If I don't put my abstinence first, I will lose it. Now, that is certainly the truth. But for most of us with a decent amount of time of recovery under our belt, you know, the food will always be the last thing you go. I will always get sick spiritually first, then mentally, and then physically. And since this is a chain, if I take care to maintain my spiritual health, the first part of the chain, the other parts of recovery will fall into place. So today... I take that saying I heard many years ago, and I tweak it slightly to fit my current situation. And I say, if I do not put my serenity first, I will eventually lose it. And if I continually lose my serenity, there's a pretty good chance I'll eventually lose my abstinence as well. And if I lose that, God knows what's going to happen after that. And thanks for letting me share.
3: Leah?
0: John, thank you so much for this very thought provoking and stimulating presentation this morning. So very helpful. felt like you were reading my mind <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for the depth of this message this morning. I really digged it, and I'm sure others did too. The share i d thirteen thousand and ninety six that's one three zero nine six for John's presentation this morning. Of course, John's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. Now we will transition to a question and answer segment. Star 1 to unmute to identify yourself, please, by first name and first letter of your last name.
4: Irene B. B From Boston. Pete B.
0: Irene B. I got you, Irene. I got Katie G., is that correct? And Pete B. Ginger C. Ginger. Yes,
4: Leia. Sorry, that was me. Okay. <laughs> okay. It yeah. Thank Got you. It.
0: Mm-hmm. Who else? It's not just John and I that think this way, is it? I'm sure not. <laughs> <laughs> <All happens>. right. <laughs> Everybody else more
5: recovering than we do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, this was excellent for me. Okay.
4: All right.
5: G
0: <laughs> in Connecticut.
4: Okay. Got you, Uh, Chris. Florence F. in Virginia. Florence F.
0: Okay. Jody, Jody
6: E. in California.
0: And Jody E. Got you. Okay, that's a great group. Everybody mute, please, except for John and Irene B. Go ahead. Irene, I'm looking for you.
4: Can you hear me? I'm there sorry. we go. There I, we go. I, I'm so sorry, Gosh, mm-hmm. Phone. Thank you so much for your service, Leah. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for the consistency of hearing your voice on Sundays and the hope that it gives us. You do an amazing service, and it just fills my spirit. And I cannot thank you enough. And John, thank you so very much for your amazing, amazing, incredible talks. I am overjoyed with the subject um i'm irene b from louisiana i recovering bulimic and compulsive overeater since age six bulimic since age 17 and three quarters to be exact <laughs> and i have struggled with bulimia my entire adult life and i was a prisoner and in the first treatment program that I went to, I've been in and out of treatment programs, they touched on the irrational beliefs concept, the cognitive distortions. And also, they, they really focused on the cognitive distortions commonly held by eating disorders
5: people. Mm. And
4: since then, I've never been able to find those. And that was 35 years ago, and my memory failed me. Irene. Just yes. a
0: reminder, this is for questions. Please. Yes,
4: I'm I'm getting there. I'm sorry, Leah. That's okay, all right. That's all right. We're trying yeah. to make the most so, of our time here. Yes, yes. So my question is how did you come across these concepts and um and do you have any clues? when um, when you have been triggered into the emotions that these thoughts provoke, that these distortions provoke. Because I am convinced that the buildup of human emotion comes from our thinking, which when it's distorted, it creates a lot of problems. The problem for me is that sometimes I don't know what's wrong. I don't have a clue not so bad anymore. It's a lot easier. I mean, mm-hmm. but I just want to know how do you – and sometimes I talk to my sponsor, and she starts asking me questions, and then I realize that I'm engaging in, in cognitive distortion. All right, well, let me so just take we,
5: these like, two things
1: then. To, uh, I'll answer those. Why don't we do that, uh, you know? Okay. okay. well, first of all, how do I come across context? Well, it's an interesting story. I have actually uh, gone back to school, and I'm uh, just about – I'm almost done with – um getting certified as an alcohol drug counselor here in California. There's a certain, you know, program you have to go through. Uh, and that came up, and I was reading this uh, list one day uh, from there. And, and I think if you just Google cognitive distortions, you can find one. Uh, uh, and I just, I was going down the list, and I was just laughing out loud going, yep, that was me, that was me, that was me. And, I, you know, on any given day, I, I don't want you to get the idea that any of these things are things that are totally in my past. Uh, I think they're a lot less. They will still crop up again, because like Arnold says, we're human. We're not going to change being human. And But I, the great thing is the longer you work on those things, and the more you recognize the thinking pattern, I think the key here is if you start to go, oh, yeah, that's that overgeneralization that, that, that Liz talked about. Oh, yeah, that's that black and white thinking. Oh, that's me trying to be a mind reader or a fortune teller, it, it, it allows you to almost step out of yourself, look over your own shoulder and say, oh, look, look at what you're doing, John. You're starting to do that. Now, does that mean that I always catch it right away? No, no, not all the time. But I, one of the things when I try, I've got almost like a trip switch after years in program. I've got like a trip switch that goes off when I hit a certain level of emotion. All of a sudden, I'm like, Why am I getting cranked up? What's going on? And sometimes I don't know. You know, again, having grown up in this crazy alcoholic family that I grew up in, I don't have the best connection with my emotions at any given time, especially when it's all of a sudden really flared. And again, it's that when when agitated, we pause, try to say, okay, what's going on here? What's going on here? And and sometimes I don't have an answer. But one of the things I really try to do is not react right away, you know, that great line that comes from the AA 12 and 12 that says, you know, restraint of pen and tongue, man, that to me is a lifesaver. And I always joke, I mean, it's restraint of pen and tongue and send button. But, to, and then if I, can, I, you know, I just learn again, like I said, uh, 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 an emotional person is not usually a rational person. And I need to have the emotion go down before I can, continue uh trying to deal with whatever it is as a rational recovered person so hopefully that helps
4: um it does uh the, the, thing, the I, thing i mean we got a lot of people here so much <laughs> okay. right. appreciate right. it right. thank
0: you Sorry. thank you so much katie g you're up, up.
4: Good morning, Leah. Good morning, John. John, always a pleasure to hear you and your lightheartedness and seriousness all at the same time. Um, I too could relate um, depending on my spiritual fitness. Just wondering if you could be more specific for both those of us who identify as recovered and maybe even somebody who's in the food, how we might integrate because I can hear this and then go on with my day. Um, and I have my, my practice of 10 and 11 to integrate, but, um, you know, if you're myself as a recovered person or a newer person, if you could just use a little bit of, um, the steps to talk about, like how we might integrate this wonderful awareness into our daily life, into our step work and our relationship with power, which is blocked when we're there. Thanks again for your service. Thanks. Thanks,
1: Katie. Katie, uh, yeah, integrating. Well, you know, I mean again, if you do, if you take all these things uh that I've mentioned and you you bring them back there, they're about about having trouble being blocked from realizing there's a, there's a higher power out there. There's a higher power out there, and guess what? It ain't me. And my job again is to, you know, to fit myself, you know, like it says in the 11th step, into, you know, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and and how and and to realize that, and, and sometimes it, it doesn't hurt, you know, I, I, I was joking when I was putting this together, going, you know, I'm going to take this this list and I'm going to make it short and laminate it <laughs> and put it in my wallet. You know, there was a woman who used to live out here in L.A. She moved away and she used to, she said when, when one of the things she did is she wrote up a, a list of like her top ten character defects and she she just little bullet points and put Put it, uh, make a laminated card and put it in a wallet. And she would take it out like a, a couple times a day when she was at work and and remember, oh yeah, that's right, I got this problem, this problem, this problem. And it sometimes remembering, oh yeah, these are the kinds of things I do in this distorted thinking. Every one of these is is an absolute block to serenity because it, it just will keep getting me cranked up. And and you know, I, you know, I get asked sometimes about about. You know, you know, dealing con- contact with a higher power. I go, you know, somewhere along the way, it just became a part of my existence, and and you know, I just sort of know that there's that everything's happening exactly we're supposed to. You know, I don't have this hugely uh, defined thing uh, that I just know there's a God and it ain't me, and that I when things go wrong, I try to. You know, sometimes you get frustrated. You're human. But then I try and say, okay, what am I supposed to learn here? What's this really about? And and if I'm getting cranked up, what what's going on? What's going on? And, and and invariably, if I think of that list, I could say, oh, this is the expectations. I expected this, and it didn't happen. And I'm I'm a little kid stomping my feet now because it isn't. Or you know, oh well, I you know I you know I had you know this. I was a mind reader. I was uh, a fortune teller. And to just again that whole. It, the more you can grasp the idea of a conscious contact with a higher power throughout the day, not just, you know, taking a break and going somewhere and praying, but to sort of inculcate it into all of your life, uh, it gets better. Now, again, do I hold on to it perfectly 100% of the time? I wish, but it's what I'm trying for. It's my goal. And, and to realize, you know, I am, I am here. I am a member of this, of this world, but I'm not the boss. And, uh, again, if I think of that traffic light metaphor, okay, I just hit a red light, you know. I got a lot of green ones before that, so I can accept that.
2: So I don't know if that helps, Katie. It
4: does. Thanks, John.
2: Thank you, Katie G.
0: Pete B., you're up now.
4: Thanks,
1: Lila. Thanks for your service. I appreciate it. John K., thank you so much. I'm sorry. Pete B., compulsive overeater, recovered today by God's grace grace and mercy. Thanks, John, for your for your uh, for your message. Uh, it was very insightful, clearly well thought out, and it had depth and weight. And I really got a lot out of it. And, like several times, you had mentioned that uh, what, you know what you learned growing up and what you were taught growing up. I'm just curious: was was any of that like formal instruction in that dysfunctional, or is that just what your perception <laughs> was and you walked away from? No, it's definitely the perception of being a little kid in a totally out of control environment.
5: I, I joke
1: sometimes that uh, I, I, you know, I, go, I would I haven't been for a while, but I used to go to ACA meetings of on a lot of adult children meetings, and they have a like a checklist in there about you know are, you know do you, you know do, does any of this fit you? And one of the questions is something to the effect of uh, Do you think that the uh, that uh, what is it? Do you think the world and people in general are out to get you? And I, I laughed, I said, I think I was actually sat in a chair and told people and, you know, the world and people in it are out to get you, you know. Now, they didn't exactly, but I, I would see that. It, it came from that family. And, and the interesting thing was to become a recovered person in program and go back and put myself back being around some of those people I, again, I had a mother and father. They divorced very early, and I went back and forth. <laughs> but even sober, I I got a chance to see them a bit and to and and uh, and to see uh, how some of the uh, things my mother did, and to realize, oh yeah, that's where I got that. Oh, that's where I got that. You know, my mother accidentally dropped something one day, and and she, you you stupid jerk, you idiot. And I I just went, look at that. She thinks she's an idiot because she did something human. But what what does a little kid do? A little kid sits there and watches the adult. And, they, you know, again, parents never sit you down and do these things. But as a little kid, you go, oh, okay, that's the way it's supposed to be. And, 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 and you know, and it, and it happens all the way through, including through addiction. I always joke that people don't sit kids down and say, oh, do, drink and drug and overeat. It's, it's great for you. But what they will watch their parents do is uh, get upset. And when they watch their parents get upset, their parents then say, I need a drink, I need a pill, I need a cigarette, I need – or they watch them go eat a cupcake. And what that little kid does is say, ah, if I don't like how I'm feeling inside here. There's something out there that I can put in here that will make it better. But again, I think most of this stuff was just simply done by watching and observing it, and it was so – such a mind uh, blower that when I came into 12-step programs and I started hearing people who dealt with life other than the way I was taught and that, wow, maybe the answer to being upset is inside me, not, not outside me, uh, that things began to change. And even then, it took a long time. So I hope that helps me. It does. Thanks, Don I'm, I'm curious, was there, was there positive instruction
4: or was positive things you walked away from?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, well, in other words, my, yeah, the, the the real crazy-making thing with my mother was uh, she was a wonderful person a lot of the time, you know, when she wasn't drinking, <laughs> you know.
2: Um,
1: you know, the the whole story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an allegory about alcoholism and drug addiction. And it was really true that, you know, and she gave me my sense of humor. She gave me that wacky way of looking in the world that turned me into a comedian. And she was very smart, and she really did a wonderful job of instilling uh, a love of learning that has st- stayed with me through my life. You know, you can tell a kid, to, oh, you need to study for school, but if you can enthuse a kid to be loving learning, as she did with me, you know, you couldn't keep me away from school when I when I was young. And uh, so there were a lot of positive things. I don't mean in any way to, to, to you know, obviously when I'm doing the thing about, about cognitive distortions, I'm going to just talk about the negative things. There were a lot of really good things, too. Cool. Thank you so much.
0: Sure. Thank you, Pete. Another reminder that children learn what they live. Okay, Ginger C, you're up.
3: Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much, John, for highlighting an addict's thinking mind so beautifully. Unbelievable job. So, this delusional mind that we have, and I don't differentiate the false from the truth, and the book also says that sometimes. Um, we're constitutionally incapable of honesty, and I have a situation where someone is so deeply ingrained and stuck in their story, and that's all they can see and revert back to, and it's probably because of years of great practice. Any suggestions to help with that?
1: Um, you said uh, a person is deeply involved in, in what about her story?
3: They're just really stuck in the story. It's, it's life is happening to me oh. over and over and over.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I I went to a non-12-step group for a while about adult children, and I left that one because it became all about bashing parents and oh poor me, look at my horrible childhood, look at all this, look at all this, because it's it, it just it wasn't working. You know, people weren't getting any better. And one of the great things about going to Al-Anon is, is and I'm not, I know it's another program, but I'm just saying. I got there, and they say the same thing. Oh yeah, you had a bad childhood. Okay, now what? Now what? You've been out of you've been out of your house since you were seventeen. Now what? At some point, there has to be a pivot toward recovery. If you all you're doing is sitting and focusing on either the past or the way things are, you you know that whole line. Nothing changes if nothing changes. The idea of trying to say I need to to change the way I'm doing things. You know, there's um, it was funny. I was just in class yesterday. We, we had this special class on group group therapy stuff. And the teacher says one of the great things to uh, to ask a person sometimes is, so is that working for you? <laughs> you know, which is a, I heard that name I don't know how many times. Is this working for you? Is what you're doing working for you? Maybe the question is, you know, do you want to be happy, joyous, and free? You know, again, we will not wish to shut the door on the past, but dot dot dot. We have to take responsibility from this day forward. We're not in the house. We are our parents. That's the you know, one of the things I've always said is, 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 you know, becoming an adult means you no longer have to do things you don't want to. Yet many things in my childhood that, that I was forced to do um, turned out to be things I was really glad I was forced to do. And I, I was so frustrated because my, father, my stepfather was a piano player, and he, I started to learn piano. And, and then I got a little frustrated and my mother said, oh, don't, make him, don't force him because it was that time. And I really wish she had, you know. But one of the things about that is we have to become our own parents a little. I don't want to sound like new age speaker or anything like that.
6: But we have to be
1: willing to push our comfort zone, you know, because, because if we don't, we're not going to get better, you know, if, if we are not willing to. To try to change that, you know there's a certain comfort, there's a certain like wallowing in the past and the poor knees or or the way we're doing things, but again, what did it get us you know um and and it's about you know again, I look at this book and I say the you know the answers are all here, and they're all. If you get right down to it, the difference between John's OA when he was first around and slipping and sliding and John's OA now is I I follow the instructions in the book and every one of them has to do with some kind of change. Because nothing changes and nothing changes. I don't know if that helps, but that's some thoughts.
3: Oh, I love it. And how's it working? That's great. Thanks, John. Sure.
0: Thank you, Ginger C. Chris, I believe G, Chris G. Your turn, Star One, mute.
7: Good morning. This is Chris G. Thank you. Thanks, John, for your message today. So powerful. <clears throat> I have a question about um, somebody who finds that working 10 and 11 brings up an overwhelming amount of shame that causes them to... Um, you know, resist doing it, they don't see the value often, particularly in sharing it with other people. I was wondering if you could, you know, given that all of these cognitive distortions are opportunities for a 10th step and, and 11th step, could you speak on that a little bit for us?
1: Sure, Chris. Um, I, um, you know, one of the things uh, uh, that came up in, in my, my, and if somebody said it once, I thought it was so good, is that guilt is, is when we think we've done something bad. Shame is when we think we are bad. And, and, and a lot of us have taken various things, some of them real, some of them not, when, uh, and turned from being feeling guilty to feeling shame, which is, I think, one of the real curative effects of a fourth and fifth and an eighth and a ninth steps. Because you, you go, okay, these are things that happened in the past. I'm not a, a proud of them. I'm not happy about them. But I am not that person anymore. The ability to sort of say, here's the old me. You know, I'll almost like draw a straight line down a piece of paper. Here's the old me to the left. Here's the new me to the right. I cannot change the past. I don't want to be that person anymore. But I have to acknowledge the past before I can get past it. The other thing that happens a lot of times is a lot of us grew up in, a, in a, not having a lot of trust that talking about these things will be heard by a person who won't be judging, who won't be demeaning, but will be there to be supportive. You know, uh, because a lot of us grew up with oh, if I told you my deep dark secret, that was ammunition you were going to use against me. Either maybe not now, maybe somewhere down in the future. But to be able to have the trust that Part of what this is all about is uh, I, I sometimes talk about it about a wound. In other words, if you think about how we're, we're wounded, and I think it's Leah's line about you know our disease comes back, uh, back through our wounds. Um, we got to clean that wound out. You know, yeah, we can. You know, let's say you got a bad wound and, and and you've gotten it dirty and or you know possibly infected. You can't just stitch it up. Because now you got a stitched up infection underneath the skin. You've got to clean it out. you got to use, you know, I don't know, peroxide or whatever to get it cleaned before you stitch it up. And and to get it cleaned out involves getting it out in the daylight. You know, you've got daylight is a wonderful disinfection, it's disinfectant, as they say. And they, that person needs to be able to trust that bringing the stuff up will help her move on and say, this was the old me. It's not the new me. If, if there's still shame, you're still this party. Maybe that's saying that I'm not changed. If you can really get, I mean, I cannot tell you how wonderful it was when I did my first fourth, fifth step. I walked out and said, I now make the decisions from here forward based on recovery i I don't like what I had to just read to this person, but that was the old John. The new me goes forward. but I've got to get that out. The wound has to get cleaned out, and it, it could be again, it's about again, shame versus guilt. you know, shame is I'm a bad person versus I did bad things, which is from guilt. And to realize that you don't you don't have to do that, you can clean it out and you have to be able to trust people. You can't share with people. If, they don't, if you can't trust them, that they're not going to be judging you other than to say, yeah, I did that kind of thing too. Or, "Oh, do you, you know, not, not just gloss over it, but say, oh, well, how do you think we can move forward from here? You know, what do you think that taught you? Those kind of things. Um, so I, I think a lot of that's a matter of, of, of finding, um, finding a way to trust other people and to realize that this is important. This is so important to clean out the wound Otherwise, you're just going to stitch it up and somewhere down the line, you're going to either be in in a bar or in a bakery or, or wherever because nothing changes if nothing changes. So, I hope that helped, Chris.
6: Thanks, John. Mm-hmm.
0: And thank you, Chris, for the question. Florence F., star one to unmute.
6: Hi, this is Florence F. Thank you, Leah, for your loyal service and <clears throat>
7: always wonderful to tune in and hear your voice. And John, I mean, wow. I, I feel like this, this I, talk, I could like listen to it, like take take two a day, listen to it twice a day and call your sponsor in the morning. I mean, this is just a, such a <laughs> curative talk. <laughs> and I'm so happy to know that 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 it gives me some comfort that you've also studied, you know. Because I thought if next time like if you're a computer person, next time my computer person comes by, I'm going to ask him how should I live my life, you know? Because it's just a wealth, <laughs> wealth, wealth of information I wouldn't expect from IT. But anyway, um, I have I love to joke too. I I have um so much in this, you know, about habits and uh, overcoming them, but here's my question. And I, I, I just play with this. Like, I think I'm intuitive, you know, like I think, you know, this business about mind reading and, and um, another thing where you can read, I, we do form impressions of people and sometimes that's a a good thing because, you know, we're trying to order our world and it's, so how do you keep from, you know, sort of the natural thing of, of forming an impression of a person so you kind of know what to expect and, and, playing your edge and what I mean to say is like being open and not you know categorizing people and judging them that that seems like a a little you know sort of glitch for me do, do you know what I mean
1: yeah no I know exactly what you're talking about sure great uh yeah well, first I'll, I'll just computer analogy wise you know um <laughs> I like to think of my time in program is I'm I'm debugging John
2: <laughs>
1: you know this is all about debugging I joke that my my first wife got, poor first wife, she got John 1.0 that was not drinking, but not a lot I hope. My, my second, uh, the person I dated between my, my first and second wife got John 2.0 and my wife now has John 3.0 and mm-hmm. I'm, here and doing all this work because John 4.0 is in data and that, that this is life. If you think about what we do here, this is debugging your life and, and your life's always going to have bugs and you're always going to have to keep working on them. And, um, and in terms of impressions, you know, I think it comes down to the, yes, you're right. We all will make impressions. You, you can't help but do that. That's human nature. Mm. But I think the key is to make the impressions out of clay and not concrete. And because what will happen sometimes, or you used to do this a lot more, is I would, bam, I would make this instant thing about somebody and then I wouldn't allow, uh, you know, the the empirical facts that kept unfolding
6: to change yeah. that,
1: you know, uh, yeah. and, and and to realize, you know, oh, you know, I, I've gotten so much better about that because you start to see human yeah. the nature. There was a guy who came in a program and he came in one day and it was, I met him um, and he had moved from somewhere else. He started coming to meetings and I had an instant dislike for this guy. Now the good thing is I have on a timing program to go, there's no reason for you to not like this guy, John, you just met him. And, and I was able to drill down and, and all of a sudden he hit me when they we were sharing. He sounds exactly like my father, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't hate my father, but you know what I mean? There was just something there. And you know, they, it's, it's hysterical, it's historical, but that, that, Sometimes our impressions, especially early ones, are based on other things coming in from the side that have nothing to do with that person. You know, they could, you know, mm-hmm. that person reminds me of this or they did something, you know, that's, that I'm folding way more into it than I should be. And this mm-hmm. means just try as best as I can, especially if you meet yeah. somebody you really don't like right away. To to Mm. sort of go, okay, well, you know, now look, let's face it. You can meet people, and after a certain amount of time of reinforcing, nope, they're definitely a jerk. (laughs) Uh, And there are people out there. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, God will take care of them, but, you know, I don't have to necessarily interact with them anymore than I need to. Uh, But then a lot of times I find, and again, it goes back to that thing that was in Dr. Paul talking about. There's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us. We, we're we not, you know, human beings aren't black and white. They're not good or bad, you know? Right. You know, you hear stories of famous historical people that have just have done wonderful things, but then you hear back story, then they, they weren't perfect either, you know? Yeah. So
0: I don't yeah. hell...
7: Yes, thank you so much.
1: Sure.
0: Okay. Thanks, Florence F., Jody E., star one-time mute.
6: Thank you very much, Leia and thank you so much, John. Wow
2: uh,
6: this is I needed to hear all of this. Um, so I did a quick search on uh cognitive distortions, and it said that these are common cognitive distortions that can contribute to negative emotions. They fuel catastrophic thinking and are particularly disabling. Wow, you know i it's just. Yes, 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 yes. So, um my question is, um, where did you how did you find these and how do you see them? Uh obviously they're very pertinent to us as compulsive overeaters. Do you feel that they're pertinent to uh any kind of addiction? Do you think they are particularly related to addiction? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: well, I, I had mentioned earlier that the first time I saw them was in the middle of taking these classes uh, for drug and alcohol addiction, and um, and uh, obviously these are human things. These aren't necessarily uh, you know just things addicts do, but they're they're human things. But the thing is, you know, like Harlan always says, you know, food's not the problem, food's the answer. So you know, for us, what are we going to turn to? And and again, it, for me, a lot of it comes down to if I can rein these in and have myself be in some form of serenity and again I had to change my thought on serenity because it, it always sounded like I was gonna be a monk or something but it's more about just a general feeling of well-being and not having to go through the world always like just slightly anxious or slightly whatever you know and and the person who lives like that doesn't need to turn to alcohol or drugs or food or anything else. And that's what I want. I mean, I joke a lot of times, this, this stuff we're doing, the, that, you know, when I lead retreats, I'll spend 10, 15 minutes talking about how hard recovery from compulsive eating is. Just because I want everybody who is having struggles to realize, oh, okay, I'm not just nuts. This is hard. And I always joke, I say, this stuff is hard already. We don't need to make it any harder. We need to do everything we can to make it easier. And again, like I said, that that chain is the serenity goes. I always learned you get better physically first, then emotionally, and then spiritually. And that you will get you will go backwards in the in the reverse order. You'll lose your your serenity, your spirituality. It'll turn into emotional stuff, and you'll eventually go back into the food or the booze or drinking. And so I need to work that way. But the one thing that's interesting, and I just, you know, I'm just finishing up these courses, and one of the things they had us do is to look at various other uh, treatment things for alcohol and drugs. And and I'm sorry, every one of them came up lacking compared to 12 steps. And I, I really tried to say, well, am I just being prejudiced? But I genuinely don't think I am. And, and the thing that's missing on this cognitive distortions that I tried to pull in, and, and there, by the way, there are a couple here that aren't necessarily part of the general list of cognitive distortions, that happen to be things that are big in my life, like expectations and judgmentalism. But the things that's missing from the things that you will Google is the phrase higher power. There's no God talked about in any of that. And for me, that's the huge thing that has to get pulled into this is the idea of higher power. And again, those who know me, I am not a woo woo god kind of person. I am a grounded-out, 12-step higher power idea. But that, that you know, again, one of the other groups that, that does recovery uses this kind of thing exactly, but it's all, how am I going to make myself better? How am I going to stay sober? How am I – and you know what? The thing is, the longer I'm around – self help groups do not work for compulsive anything. Other help groups do. God help the groups do. And that's what I'm in. I'm not in a self help group in a way. i I'm in a I'm in a God helps me, I help others group, you know? And and so that was the one thing that that to me if you start googling cognitive distortions that's being left out that I sort of tried to hopefully fold in is the concept of these are all things I need to work on with the help of my higher power, but the, it's also good to have that list to look at to say, okay, here's here's the things I need to keep working on. So hopefully that helps.
0: Thank you, Jody E, for the question. We have time for perhaps three more folks who have Julia, Julia, Stephanie K. Is that Jackie? Harlan, Harlan. Jackie. Okay, let's go with this three, these three. Julia, your turn. First letter of your last name as well, please.
5: Hi, it's Julia E.
0: Thank you. Go ahead.
5: Thank you so much. Um, My question is this. I am in A non recovered state right now. I'm in step one. So when I notice these cognitive, because (laughs) that comes up, I mean, it was seriously like you were reading my mind, my brain, and what goes on in there. And I'm afraid of taking it to outreach calls at this stage. I've been known to be a people pleaser and then sort of identify with what they're sharing it's like poor boundaries you could say and so I think I need to definitely vocalize those so I can um uh protect myself but also them because I don't want to make them my false god so Mm -hmm. how can you um you know really uh with that build that faith muscle if you're not feeling your higher power there's like a disconnect and uh without going to, you know, outreach calls right away. I, I know to, to pause, but like pray and use um, step 11 or pray and use spiritual um, energy. I get so frustrated because I stop and feel it and there's, I, I don't want to stop and feel. So um, I don't know if that's a question.
1: But, um, <laughs> so I got some of it. Let me, let me try and answer some of it for you if I can. Um, first of all, it's, Uh, You know, this disease, more than almost any of the other physical addictions, has a huge component of isolation. And I want to figure this out myself. i got a great brain. Most of us do. We just have this one little part of the insanity that that deals with food. So we're so used to going and getting all the manuals, going home, reading everything up, and we'll do it ourselves. God knows i tried to do that in all of my 12-step programs. It doesn't work. I need other people, and God speaks through other people. And and the thing I always joke about, uh, I say, you know, that concept of God. I believe God is not just one thing up there. It's it includes Leah and Harlan and Glory and 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 you know, um, Larry and, and all the people. They they are are part of it. And like I said, God delegates out and. I need other people because I always say God, uh, uh, you know, the, the key is God and myself and another human being because I can go off and pray with God and become convinced that God has told me that chocolate's a vegetable, <laughs> you know, and that I call my sponsor and he's like, eh, not for today. We're not going to do that. Because I cannot tell what he, even through the most amount of prayer and meditation, I can't tell what's the voice of my higher power versus what's the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power. That's why we need other people and why outreach calls and things like that are so important. I need to ground out with reality, which is other people and you have to have some trust in that. And if you're still having trouble with the food, I got to say that, you know, I get calls a lot because I I, I do a lot with relapse. First things first, first things first. um, make, Make getting and staying abstinent right now the most important thing in your life. Uh, be careful, because my disease wanted, the, you know, wanting to do all these things like you want it was perfectly fine, but my disease would throw as many distractions as it could in front of me when I was in the food to keep me from dealing with the actual thing, which is to get and keep the food down. So, I mean, I would try right now to really work on, on, on focusing on that as much as possible. And But again, then once you have some time under your belt, these things are things
0: that are going to help keep you abstinent. So I don't know if that helps. Thank you, Julia E. Jackie, your turn. Star one to unmute. Stephanie, actually. Stephanie? (laughs) How about that?
2: Yeah.
0: Does that work?
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, Stephanie. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah,
0: we got you. We got you. Go right ahead.
2: Okay. Great. Thanks. Sorry, I'm on a weird too thing. I don't know. Um. Yeah. So my question is that you know, as an addict, I know that you know, an addict's brain will lie to themselves
1: and manipulate without even realizing i am i'm sorry i am actually having a little trouble hearing i mean uh grasping it Uh,
2: is this better i just got much better much
1: better much better thank you (laughs) sorry about
2: that okay so so as an addict i know that like my mind will lie to itself and manipulate without even realizing that i'm doing it like i think my intentions are good i think i'm like okay like this is what i'm feeling right now these are my actions, like this is why I'm doing it. But in reality, it's like, I can't, I feel like I'm completely untethered because I can't trust myself. And so how do you go about working on these um, distortions when you're lying to yourself and your sense of what's real and what's not is completely warped because of addiction? Thank you.
5: Hmm. Okay, great.
2: Well, again, I, I,
1: again, I, and I mentioned this. I'm a huge believer in having some kind of a god squad, you know, and, and more than just a, a, a sponsor, by the way. Uh, you know, when I came in, I got taught, I got taught, uh, and I won't use the phrase because it's it's a AA rude expression. But somebody who comes in and has about the same amount of time as you, because it's good to have somebody who's on the same place in the learning curve you are to talk to about things. Gee, does this make sense? What do you think about this? And, 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 to have, and then, but then a few other people who do have more experience in that as a way to bounce things off of because, again, you're right. I don't know at any given time whether my brain is, is doing things logically, and, and I need help. Now, it also really helps to have a sponsor who you feel you can talk to and say anything to. Uh, that is a huge part of this, you know, uh, that you can talk to and 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 be open about, it, but then at the same time be able to hear things back that may not, you know, may be critical. Not not hopefully you haven't got a person who is 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 doing it in, a, in a you know a hugely negative ne- you know negative way, but that you can tell you because that's what I need. I need I need my sponsor every once in a while to go. Oh, yeah, I think there's a little ego going on there. I think you may want to look at, uh, is this happening? You know, not beat me up, but, and then about me being willing to hear that. And, and, and I think it's usually about working with others and, and it, it, in terms of, you know, uh, bouncing things off. Does this sound right to you? I'm thinking of doing such and such. Uh, Or this person did this and said that, and I feel this way. Do you think this is valid? And sometimes we'll go, yeah, yeah, that person was a real jerk. Or, gee, well, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a little ego because maybe they hurt your feelings because of this, this, and this. Uh, To be able to sort of look at some of these things, because, yeah, you're right, we can't be 100% sure uh, of our own feelings because, you know, we, we all come in this with agenda. The great thing about having a good sponsor, my sponsor has less time in program and abstinence than I do. It doesn't matter. We, once you get to a certain level, it, it's a peer thing. It's a peer thing. It's about an objective person who cares about you being able to give you objective feedback because none of us can be objective about ourselves and our motivations or any of that stuff. And to have people you can trust, give you feedback is so huge uh, and i don't think there's any way for us to do that all by ourselves sitting alone no matter how much we sit in a full lotus position trying to get in touch with a higher power we need the human beings god's delegates that will help us uh with recovery so i hope that that helped
0: thank you stephanie kay for the question And we're going to wrap up this question and answer segment with Harlan's question. Good morning,
1: Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Thank you, John, as always. Brilliant, bravo, fantastic. My question is, could you just list while the tape is going what the 10 cognitive distortions are, just so that we have it on the tape? Okay, and, and by the way, at the end of the thing, uh, uh, I'm going to give my email, and uh, if you want, I can point you toward this, a little bit of this. Now, my list is different than you can always Google Cognitive Distortions to you see another know, list, but they are, are one is about filtering. In other words, you know, filtering out the, the good and only looking at the bad. Number two is black and white thinking. Uh, number three is overgeneralization. Number four is jumping jumping to conclusions, which has the subparts, mind reading and fortune telling. Uh, The next is catastrophizing, expending things out. Uh, The sixth is personalization, making everything personal. Uh, The next was about desire for control. The next was faulty expectations, uh, the uh, next one is emotional reasoning. In other words, I feel that way, therefore it must be true. And the final one is is judgmentalism, you know, judging other people. And uh, at the end of uh, the tape, uh, I will give my email. And if, if you guys want, I made up like a little short list, and uh, I can point you to that. Thanks, John. I was going to ask you what your food plan was, but I decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> that's... that's that's an inside joke between me and Harlan. When we always The first question we always get asked at every retreat,
0: what's your food plan? <laughs> Thanks, John. Okay, Harlan. Yes. Uh, thank you, Harlan. That was great uh, to ask for that. Thank you so much. Yes, brilliant. Bravo. Thank you so much, John, for this insightful presentation. Extremely helpful. I'll be in touch with you. Thank you. We're going to oh. conclude... Uh, This presentation, this meeting from page 164, you'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask Him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order.